Scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Father, we ask that you would use these words, that you would use your word, Father, to teach us, to guide us, to point us to you, to give you the glory with our lives. We would walk away from here, Father, knowing you more intimately, more deeply, with the desire to love you and live for you more and more each day this week, Father. But again, for your glory and not ours, may you be the center of this time. May you be pleased with what we bring to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, everybody. It's good to... uh, You stole my stool? You can't just take my stool, Marilyn. I know you will. Creatures of habit, you don't do that. You throw me off. Now, what am I preaching on again? I'll figure it out eventually. We'll figure it out. Well, I'm glad that you're here with us this morning, that we can worship together. Uh, We're continuing through our series in the book of Psalms. So, um, just so if you have missed the last number of weeks, we're taking 12 psalms, psalms throughout the whole book. We're not doing all of the psalms, obviously, uh, but there are six different types of psalms, and we're taking one each week, and then we're repeating and going back. Uh, we've done psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, laments, uh, which is always interesting. Um, and today is a psalm of confidence, confidence. And so there are a few things that will help us to better understand, understand Psalm 121, because we've probably read this psalm before. We've heard this psalm before. First of all, again, it's a psalm of confidence, not a confidence in myself as the reader, but confidence in God. God is the center of the confidence of the psalmist. And so as we read it, our ultimate question to answer in this psalm is not, Okay, so what does this teach me about me? What, what does this mean that I have to do? Now, there may be some things to learn about who we are and how we are obedient to God and things like that for us to understand. But the ultimate question is not what does this teach me about me, but what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about Him? He's the center of this psalm. So how does God reveal Himself through this psalm which exposes where my confidence is actually found. So maybe it's, it's a, an affirmation of, yes, my confidence is in, is in the Lord, or maybe it's a conviction of, okay, I'm going through a hard time, and right now I'm trusting everything but God. Or maybe it's somewhere in between. But our goal is this psalm hopefully will expose where our confidence actually lies, in myself, in the culture that I'm in, the world at large, politics, money, family, friends, church even? Or is my confidence found in the Lord? 
There's a big difference between the Lord and all those other things. So secondly, so first of all, it's a, it's a psalm of confidence. Secondly, this is a, uh, the second of 15 song, songs of ascents. So it's Psalm 120 through 134 are called the songs of ascents. Now the people of Israel were required to travel to Jerusalem for three festivals each year. And not everyone lived in strictly Jewish communities. Especially later on in Israel's history, communities were filled with all sorts of people who worshipped many different gods. Lots of different cultures, lots of different backgrounds, lots of different gods. And so it was difficult, it was a difficult position for any follower of Yahweh to find themselves in the midst of a pagan society. Make the illusions how you will. That's where we are right now. We are worshipers of God in a pagan society and attempting to be faithful to God while living in a culture and a world filled with these unbelievers who, who ridiculed and looked down upon and persecuted them for their faith in God. How do they, how do, they do it as worshipers of God? But as these worshipers are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, they sang these songs of ascents. Now, each song of ascent was sung to prepare the people for encountering the presence of God in worship during these festivals. And the word ascent is used because to get to Jerusalem, you had to walk uphill. No matter which direction you're coming from, Jerusalem is built on a hill, okay? You, you, you get in verse 1, look at verse 1, okay? little spoiler alert there, all right? You had to walk up. You had to ascend to Jerusalem because it was built on a mountain. And then on top of that, this is another spoiler alert, you have the temple of God, which is built on a mountain in Jerusalem. So you're walking up to the presence of God, hence songs of ascents. You learn something new every day, right? Finally, so it's a song of confidence. It's a song of ascent. And finally, the word keeper, keeper is used six times in these eight verses. And if something is repeated, it's probably, yep, so if you've been a part of Elm Creek, you should be a little bit more confident in that, right? If you see something repeated over and over again in a passage, that it's probably important. So, we normally think of the word keeping or keeping in terms of like holding on to, right? I'm going to keep this to use it later. I'm going to keep this Panera for this afternoon when I get up from my nap and I'm hungry for a cinnamon roll. That's my future. I see that happening. That's not, that is not what the Bible is, is saying when it's using the word keep. Okay, so nerd alert, the hobbit. Anybody Hobbit Tolkien fans, like true Tolkien fans, okay, okay, nerd alert here. In The Hobbit, Bilbo's friends are captured and imprisoned with no hope of escape, okay? The keeper of keys holds these keys. Bilbo is carefully watching this keeper of the keys to find a way in order to free his friends from the dungeon, and the keeper of the keys was more than just an individual who wore the keys to the dungeon on his belt. He 
kept the keys. He protected the keys with his life. He guarded the keys and watched over the keys until they were needed by the king. This is how the Bible uses the word keeper. The Lord keeps his people. He protects he guards and watches over his people. Although that word watching over, be careful not to make that passive as if like he's just standing back going, well, that's really good. No, he's watching over as a guard would over the wall, looking out, watching to see if an enemy is coming. That kind of watching. He's actively moving and working and protecting and guarding his people. The New Testament uses the Greek word with the same meaning. Jude 24 reads this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now a lot of times we think of that word keep like he's going to prevent us, right? That God preventing us from stumbling. That's not what that means. It's not that he's preventing his people from stumbling, but that he guards and protects us from stumbling as 1 Corinthians 10 says, providing a way of escape so that we are able to endure the temptation of stumbling. Do you see see the difference? God doesn't put a hedge of protection around his people so that they can live comfortable lives drinking a margarita. That's just not how it works. He allows and causes hardships to come upon us and even temptations to come in order to test us, but he always provides a way out. He is always guarding. He is always protecting. He is always watching over his people so that they're not left alone. And so the psalmist calls the Lord his keeper, the one who protects and guards him while living in a world which hates God and anyone who worships him. This psalm then it's broken up into four different stanzas, and there's a purposeful progression or movement from one to the next. And if you read Psalms regularly, you will see this type of movement used all different kinds of ways. That's how poetry works. It goes from one thing to the next to the next, and it builds up. A similar progression actually is found. Actually, so here's what the progression is in, in Psalm 121. Eyes, foot, hand, and life. That's the progression. Eyes, foot, hand, and life. Now, there's a similar progression found in in Leviticus 8, where Aaron is ordained as the priest of God. And in the ceremony, now, how many of you always read, if you read this passage in Leviticus 8, you thought, this is the weirdest thing ever. Moses takes the blood of the ram, and he puts it on Aaron's right earlobe, yep, it says that, his right thumb, and then the big toe of his right foot. Anybody else ever read that? Okay, that's Leviticus 8. You should read that. I've always thought, I was like, that is the weirdest thing. I was like, earlobe? Really? Like, why? Big toe? I mean, come on. Really? That's so strange. Well, there is a purpose for it, as there always is in Scripture. There's always a reason why things happen. God is ordaining the entire body of Aaron, not just his feet, not just his hands, and not just his head. The whole body of Aaron literally is ordained as holy to the Lord as the high priest in service 
of God. It's not just to go do ritual. His whole body, it's a symbol of his whole body being made holy. The same principle is happening in this progression in Psalm 121. There is a sense of completeness. The whole being of the child of God being kept, guarded, watched over by the Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't just intervene every once in a while. He doesn't just protect eh, when he feels like it. He's always doing it in every aspect of the life of his people. Okay, so does that all make sense? That's a lot to take in, right? That's the introduction. Again, my seminary professor would be really angry at me because that was way too long for an introduction. But we need to understand these, I believe, in order to fully grasp what's being said in Psalm 121 than rather just going, oh, that's so nice. Isn't God good? No, yes, it is nice. And yes, He is good. But there's so much depth. There's so much deepness in this. So, verses 1 and 2. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Again, these hills are not just any ordinary hills. These are not the Rocky Mountains. These are not the hills of Maple Grove, which are, you know, that dirt pile or whatever over there. Okay, no, these are hills on which the city of God, Jerusalem, is built. And in that city, again, there's another hill, a mountain of the Lord, Mount Zion, on which the temple is built. And so the psalmist's eyes, they're down, they're discouraged, they're distressed. And how we know this is because the first psalm of ascent, Psalm 120, starts this way. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Psalm 120 is the beginning of the song of ascent. And he says, the psalmist says, I am really distressed right now. I am very discouraged. I am super down. My eyes are down and worried. And yet, as he nears Jerusalem, he lifts his eyes up to the hills upon which the presence of the Lord resides. He knows where he's going. His eyes are no longer downcast. They are looking up to the one, to be in the presence of the one who is his help. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. The Lord, you know, the one who created all the universe, the maker of the heavens and the earth. My eyes turn to the one who not only resides with his people on Mount Zion, but he is the creator of the entire world. It's a reminder of God's presence and his power and authority over all things in heaven and on earth. For should God's people be in distress and trouble, well then who better to turn to than the one who has control over all of those things? His power is complete, and so is his help for his people. And then you get to verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, God does not let the psalmist's foot be moved. That the you's that you see in here, the you, 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 speaking of the psalmist, those are all singular. It's all pointing to the psalmist. God will not let his foot be moved. Literally, his foot will not slide or fall or stagger or tremble. The Lord is a firm foundation 
who doesn't shift and he doesn't move with the tides of this world. He is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever. He never changes. He is sure. He is solid. He's unmovable. He is fixed. And so those who build their life and stand upon that foundation will not be moved. And immediately, if you have a, 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 a church background, you think of the house that's built on the sand versus the house that's built on the rock, right? Jesus' parable. Those that, whose house, those who put their trust in Christ, to put their trust in the Lord, are built on a found, firm foundation. So when the winds of this world and the troubles of this world come, the house may bend, it may move, it may creak, but it is solid. But you build that house upon sand. You build that house upon the things of this world. You build that house upon it. How about, let's, let's get specific. Family, friends, money, job, contentment, joy, peace, feelings, intellect, all of those things. Guess what? You build your house of, of confidence upon those things and our house will crumble to the ground at the first sign of problem, problems and troubles. But if we build our house, if we build our life, our confidence upon Christ, it's a foundation that will never move. And he tells us why, the psalmist does. He says, because the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. Now, I've noticed that as I've gotten older, that I'm slumbering more often, okay? If, as you get older, I was never a napper. Still to this day, I nap every once in a while, but I'm nap. I never, ever did that in my life. Sometimes I nap for 45 minutes. Sometimes I just nap for 10 minutes. But I've also been known to sleep hard at night, the older I've gotten. Years ago, years, probably like three or four years ago, one of my children came up in the middle of the night and said, Dad, I've had a, I had a bad dream. Will you pray for me? And my response was, good for you. And I rolled over and I went back to bed. Now, to my defense, I have no recollection of that. I was so deep in my sleep, I had no idea they were even there. And to their credit, they went, okay. And they went downstairs and went back to bed. That's sleeping. That's sleeping. The Lord needs no naps. He doesn't slumber and he doesn't sleep. He doesn't nap and he's not so out of it that all of a sudden, what, what just happened? What, 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 you, came, you came to me as my child? I don't remember that. I told you to get over it and go to bed. Yeah, no, he doesn't do that. He is always there. He is always awake. The Lord needs no sleep. He needs no naps. So his keeping of his children is complete and sure, a foundation which never fails as long as the psalmist is standing on him. And like the waves which began to swallow Peter as he walked on the water to go to Christ, if you remember that story from the New Testament, Christ, he says, if it's really you, Jesus, call me out. And Christ says, well, come. So Peter gets out, he's walking on the water, and then he gets distracted by the waves, and he begins to fear. And Jesus grabs him and rescues him and says, oh, you of little faith, 
Just like those waves, so it is with anyone who places their ultimate confidence to be helped in times of distress in the things or the people of this world other than the Lord. Now, don't hear me wrong. Don't hear me saying that, you know, family's worthless and friends are worthless and money is worthless. We just did our budget this week. Money is precious, right? We can all feel that, right? That is true. But our hope does not ultimately land on that because it is fickle. Inflation goes up, inflation goes down, hopefully. Right? You, have to, we, you can't put your trust in the stock market. You can't put your trust even in your own family because guess what? They're sinful. They will fail you ultimately. They're good. They are gifts of the Lord and we praise Him for that. I would give my life for my wife and my kids, but I do not put my life on them. There's only one who can save me, and his name is Jesus. My wife ain't no Jesus, and my kids are not Jesus. Elm Creek is not Jesus. Money is not Jesus. Prosperity and, and, uh, and joy and those things of this world are not Jesus Christ. They cannot save. They are not a firm foundation. But God is. God is. And then verses 5 and 6, speaking of his hand, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Okay, so again, these are, this is strange poetic language, right? I once worked as a seasonal city employee in South Dakota after I graduated from college college graduate, and I trimmed parks and trails for a whole summer, all day, every day, with a weed eater. Yes, it was not fun. And there was one particular hot day, there wasn't a cloud in the sky, and the sun was beating down on the three of us as we were, we were working, and we're slaving away in this park, and all of a sudden, at one point, my head, being down, doing my job, I suddenly felt a rush of coolness go across the back of my neck. And at first you're like, well, this is really weird. And I looked up, and there was one tiny cloud that happened to cover the sun for about 30 seconds. And I sat there, and I stopped trimming, and I just basked in the shade. And I looked, and my two fellow workers were doing the exact same thing, just basking in the shade for 30 seconds. And then the cloud went away and we turned and we went back to our job. That is what the Lord does for those whom he keeps. He is the shade which gives relief from distress. He is the one who is there to cover those to give that relief, not for 30 seconds, but all day, the sun will not strike you by day, and all night, nor the moon met by night. And once again, the keeping of the Lord of his people is complete. There is not one thing in our life that he does not watch over us. And then seven and eight, this is the closing stanza about life 
as whole. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And so to drive the point home of his God's complete keeping, this final stanza is given to us. The Lord will keep you from all evil. Now again, that doesn't mean that God's people will never see evil. We will see it on a daily basis. It's Psalm 120 actually begins again with, in my distress I call to the Lord. So prevention's not the point. Distress is going to come. He keeps us, he protects us, he guards us in the midst of all evil. It's a complete dependence for us, trust and confidence in the Lord, who like a never-sleeping watchman is always on guard and ready to fight at a moment's notice. He never forgets his people and he keeps them from all evil. He guards their going out and their coming in. Daily events, going to work and coming back, going to school and coming back, going out to play in the yard and coming back, going out to do work in the yard and coming back, or just waking up and going to sleep. Every aspect is covered and guarded by God from this time forth and forevermore. Like you can't get much more complete than that. That's forever, for all time. So in other words, God's keeping of his people is a complete keeping. So as the psalmist is walking up to Jerusalem in order to worship Yahweh, he's singing these songs. She's singing these songs. These family groups are singing these songs together to focus their mind and their heart on the one that they are worshiping. They are leaving their home temporarily a home which is filled with distress, which is deal with, filled with persecution. And they're turning their eyes to the one in the midst of that distress they know they can find help in. My help comes from the Lord, who's the maker of heaven and earth. He guards over me over all things. And as they progress their way up to Jerusalem, their worship together grows and grows and grows because their eyes are fixed on the Lord. They're fixed on his city, Jerusalem. They are fixed on his house, the temple. And their love for him grows, and their reliance upon him grows, and their reminder of, you are my firm foundation, and it is in you who I put my trust. But there's a little problem. We don't have a temple. I, I mean, it'd be great to go to Jerusalem. I would love that, but I don't make three daily trips to Jerusalem for festivals. I'm not even Jewish. So how in the world does this apply to us? Well, there's no physical temple. What does the Bible say is the temple now? His people are the temple. So as the psalmist is walking to where the presence of God resides, in the city of God, in the temple of God. Back when he wrote this, we as his people now, we don't need to travel. We look to his temple and to his presence, which is in us. If we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are the people of God. And when he saves us, 
His Spirit comes and dwells within us. It's no longer over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies, inside the temple, inside the city of Jerusalem. It's here. It's here. And He's always with His people. That's why it's wrong to say, Lord, come and fill this place. I hate to break it to you. He's already filled this place. We're just entering into it. And if we don't see it, it's because we're, we're not right. Because he is here with his people always, 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 always. And so we gather together as his people. Each one of us, a temple where the presence of God resides, worshiping him on a Sunday morning. So if you want to sing this in the car, why are you coming to church on Sunday? That, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, this, is not, this is not the temple of God. This is a building. This building burns down, we still gather together in, as the temple of God, worshiping him because his presence is in us, not in this room. Like, he's not confined here. Like, this is the only place that God is. He's with us wherever he goes. And so in moments of distress, in those moments when we are persecuted, in those moments, let's even just make it more general, in those moments as God's people when we're striving to be faithful to his word and we're getting pushed from every side, including our own heart, to compromise in even little ways to what his word reveals to us. To compromise, to try to make little holes of like, well, I can work around that one by getting here because that's not really what he means. But instead, when we read it and we submit ourselves to the word of God and we strive to be faithful to him, guess what? Trouble is going to come. Trials are going to come. Sometimes they're external. And sometimes they're just our own sinful heart and our flesh fighting against the spirit of God in us. But trials and troubles will come. But what does Christ say? What does Christ say? say in John 16 in this world you will have tribulation okay I'll say it health wealth prosperity is out the window just that one verse you're going to have problems you're going to get sick you're going to go bankrupt you're going to die in this world you're going to have troubles you're going to have people who hate you just because you're a Christian just because you're striving to follow God. There will be people within the church, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, who will try to fight against you if you're being faithful. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Why? Because he's overcome the world. He's overcome the sinful heart. We will have troubles. We will find troubles. And you know, let's be honest, sometimes we go looking for trouble because that's our sinful heart. But we have a God who watches over us. And not only that, he's already defeated the enemy through his son, Jesus Christ. And so our confidence, our confidence of perseverance in the faith, our confidence in, in that God is going to help us to persevere is found not in ourselves. It's not found in ourselves. It is not found in the world around us. Well, if, if we just did this and the world saw like how nice we really are, then, then they will love us. 
Hey, there was nobody more perfect and nice than Jesus, and they crucified him on the cross. How much more so was he going to do, they're going to do something to his disciples? Our confidence of perseverance, our confidence of protection, our confidence of joy, our confidence of faithfulness, all of that is found in him. He is our keeper. He is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and be presented blameless before the presence of God. That's Jude, Jude 24. He is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling because he will always provide a way out for us to be faithful to him. So we gather together as God's people, not because this is the temple, but because being in unity in Christ, we gain strength and encouragement we're sharpened, we're reminded. We might not sing this psalm, but our hope and our prayer is every song we sing and every word that comes from the front is a psalm of ascent. It's a psalm of a reminder. This is not about us. This life that we live, this worship that we have on Sunday mornings, our gathering together outside of this time, our ability and, and, and um, discipline of reading God's word and spending time in prayer to him, it's all about him. It's all about him. He is the center of it. And he is our confidence. Because who better to put our confidence in than the one who created you and me and everything around us. Everything. As God's people here at Elm Creek, may we strive to have that, that confidence. That as we worship together on Sunday mornings, as we wake up and we have another breath of air in our lungs, that we remember who it came from. And we remember who our foundation for life is found in Him and Him alone. Father, use us. Father, use us. Well, first show us, God. Remind us. And may you use us in our life to glorify you and to glorify you alone. Remind us, God, you are our keeper, all the things of this world, including our own hearts and our own intellect and our own feelings. Whatever it may be in this world, Father, will fail us, but you never fail. You always do as you say, and you have promised to keep us as your people. God, may, may we as your people show this, exude this, live this, and may our confidence be found in you and in you alone. We ask this in your name, amen. As we go to the table for communion this morning, our foundation is in him. We are the temple of God, not because we're Jewish or we're a certain ethnicity or we have a certain amount of money or we have a certain position in society. None of that. No, we are the people of God because of what Christ did upon the cross. And so that's why our confidence is firm and sure. Yes, it's in, it's in God through Jesus Christ as his people because we are saved by him, by grace alone. And so 
when we take the cup and we take the bread and we're reminded of what Christ did, He is our firm foundation. He is the foundation of our salvation. He is the foundation of our life. And through Him, we are kept. And so when we come back, grab the, the cup and the bread and we come and sit down um, before we take it together as a family to, to think through, to, to meditate with joy, with conviction even, with confession of sin, to look to the cross, to look to who Christ, what he did and who he is and say, in you is my confidence. This is a reminder, God, that I am yours and you are in me and I praise you for it. May I never, ever forget it. So when you're ready, all we ask is that you're a believer, that you are a child of God. We don't ask that you have to be a member of this church. You go, um, we'll start a line back here. You grab a cup, you grab the bread, you come back to your seat, and then together we will take it as a family. Um, take the communion and, the, and the, the Lord's Supper together. So whenever you're ready, go ahead and start the line, and then we'll do it together.